Hey guys, thanks for tuning in for another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. Um, I screwed up. This was supposed to be Thursday night, not Tuesday night, but Scott was kind enough to just uh, push it back an hour and do it anyways. So thanks for that, Scott. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Happy to be here, man. I had to get something in my stomach, but now I'm ready. There we go. Um, first thing I wanted to say is I've uh, I've been listening to your audiobook. Uh, enough already time to end the war on terrorism, uh, being a truck driver, doing all this stuff, never have time to sit down and read a paper book, but I've been listening to it. It's great. Everybody should go get that. I uh, read his book, you know, get the audio book, whatever, but amazing book, man. Just like really, really well done lays everything out. Um, I was actually, I, I know I texted you and was telling you about this, but a few weeks ago I was talking with my neoconservative uncle, and I was telling him, he was, he's basically asking me, what could we have done to get Osama bin Laden other than what we did? And I said, well, we could have like accepted him from the Taliban. And then I was just like walking him through everything that had happened and it blew his mind. And, uh, you know, that book is a great tool to just prepare anyone for that type of conversation. Awesome, man. That's really great to hear. I think, um, you know, <clears throat> as, as people who are familiar with this subject, who read the book, know it's essentially a synthesis of a lot of other people's work here. You know, I'm not an on the ground reporter from, you know, the actual wars themselves or a veteran or anything like that. I just stayed home and covered them. But I think the real advantage is that you can tell when you read it that I'm just not a partisan at all. I never was. And I don't have to pretend to not be either because I'm just not. And so I can tell the story of what Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton and George Bush and Barack Obama and whoever all did wrong without having to pull punches or without having to try to spin it or without having to say, well, yeah, Bill Clinton was bad, but W. Bush was so much worse or whatever, because that's not my point, right? That's not what I'm trying to do. And I think, you know, people have their own political heroes and they see me going after them, but they also see me going after the other guy just as much in the exact same way. I think I saw one comment where a guy said, well, I don't think you went after Barack Obama very hard. I'm like, man, geez, I, I, I don't really remember it that way. I, you know, you're the only one person who said that everyone else, you know, sees it in that same way. So I think that that really helps, you know, you know, it should make it easier for your uncle to go. Well, look, somebody's criticizing what Bush did at Tora Bora, but that someone's not a Democrat. That person just has, you know, this whatever separate criticism that doesn't come with partisanship has nothing to do with Hollywood liberal elites whining and has nothing to do with Nancy Pelosi vote collecting or whatever it is. It's not about that. It's just about us and what we're doing. And um, I've gotten a great reaction from, you know, military guys, dude. I know there's an effort right now that these guys are spreading that book all to American military bases all over the world. You got active duty army officers who are passing this book around to each other right now. Um, and, you know, I'm hearing the whispers of that, you know, a little bit of that on this end. And and they all like it because I'm not telling them to go to hell in the book. That's not what it's about. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well, well done, man. It's it's great stuff. Thank <laughs> it's very you. Well appreciate that. Yeah. I really, you know, I wrote it to be for you to give to your uncle and your father-in-law. That's what it's for. You know, it's not for my people. It's for my people to give to their people. And I left all the footnotes out and I just said, you know what, believe me now, you know, know it later when you do your own verifying and, and fact checking if you want to do but i'm just trying to give you the narrative easy peasy without a million numbers all throughout the thing and just not for you reed but for your uncle so yeah. so you can give it to him and he'll be like all right what the hell i can knock this out 300 pages ain't that bad and then see what you think when you're done with that so that's what it was for i really want it to get you know, it's kind of weird because it's not like I have a big publisher, although I did get a nice offer from a nice publisher to work with me on it, but it was just going to take too long to do. So I went ahead and did it through the Institute. But um, one of the things that hurts, I guess, is because I'm not a partisan. I don't have the whole like liberal machine behind it or the whole conservative machine behind it. It's just little old me and word of mouth. But the word of mouth has been pretty powerful, you know, so far. So but I really want it to be the kind of thing where everybody's right wing uncle can read it and say, oh, huh, well, I guess we really didn't have to do that after all. Which, by the way, that's what Trump said. You know, Donald Trump said, ah, geez, we should have never done that at all. What do we get out of it? Nothing. The worst decision any president ever made was when W. Bush decided to go over there. 
So that ought to be, you know, for people on the right who are a little uncomfortable about this stuff. Well, what do you think Donald Trump was talking about there when he was saying this whole thing should have never happened at all? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to have the nonpartisan on to talk about what's going on with Ukraine right now. Um, but I feel like we should start like seven or eight years ago with the Crimea Peninsula being annexed and everything. And I, yeah. I remember when that was happening and I wasn't nearly as into politics as I am now. But the narrative that I was sold was not that Crimea wanted to leave and join Russia. It was that this was, you know, this was this horrible invasion taking place uh, by Russia and we needed to condemn everything they were doing. And Obama actually dropped the ball by not doing enough. But could you tell us what happened in 2013, 2014, why, um, you know, Russia ended up taking over you, uh, the Crimea Peninsula, what that was all about? Yeah. Can we start with just what you just said about the outright lie by omission here? Right. Yeah. Russia took Crimea, but Reed needs to know why they did it. And they wouldn't tell you. They wouldn't tell you. You know, the all important context, for example, well, what do the people of Crimea think? You might think that that was relevant. But you know what? For the American narrative on TV at the time, that would have helped to only confuse the issue and change it from a black and white one to a gray one. It would have undermined the narrative, Reed. So they just withheld that information from you. They didn't even ask that question at all. And it is, and it's an outright lie by omission. It's that's just that little thing, just in the way you introduce the question even. It goes to show how agenda-driven all the media coverage is. You know, there was a funny meme going around a couple of weeks ago with all of the different TV news ads saying, brought to you by Pfizer. Did you see that? And it was like every channel plus even PBS was like sponsored by Pfizer. Everybody. Well, what if they just didn't call it PBS, NBC, CNN? What if it was just the Pfizer News Network? And then this is just Pfizer bringing you the news. And by the way, the news is Pfizer drugs work great. That'd be, it'd be 1% clearer, but it'd be 100% clearer right there, right? They're like, oh, I get it. What I'm watching here is essentially, this is all packaged to please the people paying for it one way or the other. Well, same thing with the arms manufacturers. And that's who essentially controls the American media. And you can even see it on your Sunday morning news shows. They'll do 30-second commercials for Northrop Grumman. Now, what are they selling? They could be selling stock. But what they're really selling is NBC's dependence on Northrop Grumman. Don't you like it when we write you checks? Yeah, we know you do. So let's not have any coverage on here that's going to upset Northrop Grumman. We got a big deal coming in with them soon. And it's more effective than Pravda and Toss under the Soviet Union. It's the most effective propaganda machine in the world. And I was just interviewed by some guys an hour ago. And they were like, yeah, man, all my right wing friends, they hate the government. They disbelieve and distrust the government about every single thing. And then all of a sudden, Russia, China, and they believe every word of it. Whatever the media says, whatever the government says about these other governments must be true all of a sudden. When it's the very same liars who lie to you about everything are the ones who are telling you this, too. Like, why give them the benefit of the doubt at all? What have they done to deserve the benefit of the doubt here? When they accuse Russia of doing a thing, shouldn't the very first question be, wait a minute, what were we doing before Russia did the thing they did? That's not calculus, man. That's pre-algebra. That's simple, you know? And then, of course, the answer is, well, America did a bloody, violent coup d'etat. Used a bunch of neo-Nazis in the street to do it. And they overthrew a democratically elected government that voted the wrong way. And so the protectors of democracy used literal grandsons of the Galatian SS, proud heirs of the Nazi party, to overthrow a Russia-leaning, democratically elected government and have their way. And I'll refer you here to two very important pieces of information that come from the war party. The first is actually intercepted by Russia, presumably, and posted on YouTube. It's the F the EU phone call from Victoria Newland. The second 
is the editor of Foreign Affairs, Gideon Rose, being interviewed on The Colbert Show. Now, the F the EU phone call, just real briefly here, the reason, Reed, that she's saying F the EU, this is Robert Kagan's wife, Victoria Nuland, the Undersecretary of State for European Affairs under Obama. She's on the phone with Jeffrey Pyatt, the ambassador to Ukraine, and they're plotting a coup d'etat. And the reason she says F the EU is she says, essentially, the Germans are taking too long to get this thing done. So we're going to push them out of the way. We're going to do it our damn selves. And I've got the vice president, that is our current president, Joe Biden, on board. We're going to get Robert Sari from the UN is going to help. And then we're going to glue this thing. We're going to midwife it. We're going to make it sail. We're going to put it together. We're going to see it through. And we're going to do this coup. And, and she's picking the government. The prime minister is going to be this guy. And I don't want it to be that guy. I want him on the outside doing public relations. And I want this other guy, this and that. She picks the prime minister and everything. That's the phone call. And as she makes clear to Jeffrey Pyatt in the phone call, this is going to be great, Jeff. This is going to be easy. And Putin's not going to be able to do anything about it because he's distracted by the Sochi Olympics. And so we're going to get this thing done. He, 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 he. Okay, same thing with Gideon Rose on the old Colbert show right during this moment of the coup in February 2014 um, on the old Stephen Colbert show. I mean, why is he even on there? Who even booked this? The editor of Foreign Affairs goes on Colbert and the interview is about how we, as Rose puts it, we are stealing Ukraine away from Russian influence. Ukraine is Russia's girlfriend. We're breaking them up. Ukraine is Robin to Russia's Batman, and we're breaking up the team. And what we're going to do is we're going to glue it. We're going to stick it. We're going to midwife it. We're going to whatever, whatever. We're going to make this coup happen. And Putin, distracted by the Sochi Olympics, won't be able to do anything about it. Tee hee hee. Hee hee hee. And, and Colbert goes, wow, great. Yeah, great job being a satire Republican there. Just playing along there, Stephen. Um, good job, as always. Um, and so then what happened was not that, right? What happened was Putin said, oh, well, I guess I'll watch the Olympics out of my left eye and I'll watch the Ukrainian coup d'etat out of my right eye. He was really, what? They're going to just shut down the FSB for a week and not keep an eye on Ukraine at all? So... What happened was after the new coup junta took power, they declared they were going to kick the Russians out of the Sevastopol naval base at Crimea. Now, you have to understand that the Russians took the Crimean Peninsula from the Turks back in the 1780s, in 1783, when we were, that was I'm almost certain the same year we finally signed the peace deal with Britain at the end of the Revolutionary War. And we're still under the Articles of Confederation for another four years or, well, Another seven years because, um, you know, the convention was in 87, but it wasn't really ratified and put into effect until 91. So we're still in the Articles of Confederation at the time the Russians seized this thing. So if Crimea uh, belongs to Russia, then Massachusetts belongs to the United States. That's basically the same thing. Um, now, during the days of the Soviet Union in 1954, Khrushchev, after Stalin died, needed the support of the Ukrainian Communist Party to come to power and replace him. And so he gave, essentially, this is an edict of the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in the middle of the night, they say he was drunk, said Crimea now belongs to Ukraine. But at that time, Reed, it didn't make any difference because everybody was answerable only to the Kremlin anyway. It was a very centralized, unified empire under the Soviet empire. So then at the end of the Soviet Union, 30 years ago, when even Belarus and Ukraine and the last of the stands and everybody were set free, of Russian rule, they made a deal that Crimea will belong to Ukraine and will remain under Ukrainian sovereignty, but Ukraine promises to let the Russians keep their naval base at Sevastopol. It's their only warm water port all year round. It's their major port in the Black Sea. And so that was the deal. And that deal held for 25 years. It wasn't until Obama hired a bunch of Nazis to do a violent street putsch and overthrow the government. And then that new government come to power and threaten to kick the Russians out of there. That only then did the men essentially go outside and stand on street corners and occupy the place and say it belongs to us now. 
And when they did that, by the way, and I don't know what they told you at the time or what they implied at the time, but no one was killed, Reed. No one was killed. It wasn't an invasion. They left their naval base, the Marines and whatever they call the Russian Marines and the, and the Navy men there. They just went outside and stood on street corners. And they said, this belongs to Russia now. What? They didn't even invade from Russia. They just went outside, left their base. And I saw footage at the time. I don't know if anybody could find this anymore. But there was footage of some Russian soldiers telling some Ukrainian soldiers, you boys better turn around and head the other way. And they say, you know what? That's a good idea. And they fire a couple warning shots over their head. And then the Ukrainians turn around and leave. And that was it. And that's called a coup de main. And a coup de main is not always peaceful or, you know, not bloody. It's not exactly peaceful. There's a bit of coercion going on here, I'll admit. We're talking about men with rifles standing on street right. corners and declaring a new monopoly on force after all. But it's um, essentially one single successful surprise attack, right? So same when Saddam invaded Kuwait. A lot of people were killed, not a whole lot, but, you know, people were killed, but it was one big attack and then it was over. So that was what happened here. And no one was killed, no one at all. Then, in the east of the country, in the far east, where the Russian speakers, well, the whole east of the country is essentially Russian speaking, but in the very far east Donbass region, Donetsk and Luhansk, they said, well, look, if you guys can occupy government buildings in Kiev and overthrow the government, then we can occupy government buildings here in our local districts and refuse to recognize the legitimacy of your new coup d'etat government. So that's what they did. And as soon as they did that, the government in Kiev declared a war on terrorism and invaded the east of their own country and, right. you know, with violent force, overwhelming violent force. And, you know, started a war that killed something like 15,000 people. And this is mostly in the year 2014 and 15. And Putin was accused then over and over and over again of invading Ukraine. The head of NATO declared it like six different times or something. The New York Times top you know, front page, top, above the fold. Russia invades Ukraine. But it just wasn't true. They never sent their infantry and their armor across. They only used Spetsnaz or whatever special operations forces, deniable clandestine forces, to help the people of the Donbass region keep the Kiev regime out. But they didn't do more than that. And in February of 2015, they held a plebiscite in the East where they voted to join the Russian Federation. They wanted to join, like Crimea had joined. Oh, I skipped the part where in Crimea they held a referendum where I think they said 90-something percent voted to join Russia. It was already a done deal by that time anyway. And then there was uh, German polling firms and others came in and verified those numbers were at least like high 80-something percent. And there are minorities of Ukrainians and Tatars in Crimea, some of whom may very well not have wanted to join the Russian Federation. There's no question that the, that the super duper majority did, if that's a thing, you know, above eight, above 70 percent, above 75, you know. Um, now, so they held a plebiscite. I'm not sure what the numbers are. Right. Also very high. I'm pretty sure super majority numbers in uh, the Far East also voted to join Russia. And Putin told them no. And they're still part of Ukraine to this day. He could have at that point just picked up a black magic marker and said, here's the new border of the Russian Federation. The Donbass now belongs to us. And hell, if he wanted to, he could have marched to Odessa, Kiev. There's nothing to stop him from marching to Kiev. Um, and he didn't do that. He didn't do it then. And the Germans and the French came to Obama and said, listen, we're cutting a deal. We want an end of this war right now. And Obama said, fine. And it was Angela Merkel and uh, I forgot his first name, Holland that went over there and they signed the deals called Minsk and then Minsk II was, you know, the city in Belarus where they signed the deal, um, where the Kiev government promises to give this, like, you know, strong federalism and expanded autonomy to this breakaway Eastern region in exchange for them staying inside Ukraine and recognizing the new government and, and cooperating with it. And it's not been fully implemented, but essentially the fighting has been at a lull since then. Um, there's been, you know, some fighting, but certainly not the full scale type war that it was in 2014 and 2015. Um, and, and the, I think even the Americans admit that the Kiev government has not given that level of autonomy to the East that they had promised in the deal. And, um, so this, you know, remains obviously an outstanding point of contention. Now, 
it's also important to point out as especially like a touchstone for people who are familiar or who are less familiar with this story that one thing that you do know about it was that this gas company barisma hired joe biden's son hunter and paid right. him eighty-five thousand dollars a month. At first, they said fifty. It was eighty-five. That's a million bucks a year uh, to sit on their board of directors. Why? Well, the answer was it goes right back to that FDEU phone call. Joe Biden was in on it. Joe Biden was holding the Ukraine brief. He was the vice president holding the Ukraine brief, as they put at the time, in charge of this policy. And on the FDEU phone call, Victoria Newland says, "I just heard from Jake Sullivan." who at that time was working for Biden, is currently Joe Biden's national security advisor. I just heard from Jake Sullivan, and he says Biden is willing to get on the phone tomorrow. We're going to do a conference call with all the participants, and he's going to give them an attaboy and get the deets to stick, the details to stick together here. And so we're working with him on that, and this guy Robert Sari from the UN, and we're going to put this thing together. So who's Burisma? Burisma is a gas company that was in tight with the previous government that had just been overthrown. So now they were afraid that they were gonna be in trouble with the new government. So in order to prevent that, they hired Joe Biden's son. And it, to me, it's extremely instructive, Reed, that they didn't hire the son or the cousin of Prime Minister Yatsenyuk that they had just put in power there. They hired the son of the Vice President of the United States of America. And probably, I'm just guessing, but probably because they heard and listened very closely to the FDEU phone call, and they heard Victoria Newland explain that Joe Biden is running this whole show. This is his project. And, you know, he had been over there numerous times and, you know, famously to get the prosecutor fired, which all the fact checkers say that's not true. But yes, it is true. The fact checkers say, no, those prosecutions had already been shut down. So Biden couldn't be threatening him that you better shut down those prosecutions. But Matt Taibbi showed that that is not correct. He knows Russia and he lived in Russia for a while and he made a lot of phone calls and has a lot of contacts and did some actual journalism, not just repeating the rest of this stuff like a minor bird, like these other characters. And he went and found there were all kinds of different investigations into Burisma, some of which were absolutely open at the time. And people can read that at his Substack if they look into that, that there really is reason to believe that there were active investigations at the time that Biden was threatening and did succeed in getting the attorney general fired and replaced with somebody else at the time. Um, so, so this that, seems like it was so long ago already, but yeah, what Trump was getting impeached for was mm -hmm. withholding aid until this was investigated, right? That's literally all he got impeached for, to my memory. Right, and for holding up an arms deal right. until they would look into this. Yeah. Right. Now, so Obama hired these Nazis to overthrow the government there, but he was afraid to arm them. He sent the Rangers to train them, but he was afraid to send them weapons. Trump came in and started sending them weapons. And then he got impeached for temporarily putting a hold on sending them weapons. It's just incredible. I mean, to think that that's the history of the United States of America was we've had three presidents who've ever been impeached. Andrew Johnson, because he fired his cabinet over the Senate's dead body uh, after the Civil War. Bill Clinton, who purged himself over an affair with a mistress, which is also absolutely absurd considering the felonies that that guy's guilty of. Um, yeah. and, uh, and then Donald Trump, who temporarily held up an arms deal to Ukraine until he could seemingly try to pressure them into opening a legitimate criminal investigation into some legitimately criminal obstruction of justice and shady dealings going on here, you know? But... It's it's Trump, so it can't possibly be legit, right? And meanwhile, the whistleblowers on that case, Eric Cheramella, I hope I don't get you kicked off YouTube for that. Um, and um, and Colonel Vindman, forgot his first name, who yep. came out. They were both placed there by John Brennan. They were clearly put on the National Security Council to find something, anything to use against Trump after Russiagate fell apart. That this plan B is these guys got to find something. And then if you go back and listen to the Vin, Colonel Vindman's testimony, it is the most absurd thing. I mean, you know, I, I kind of only watched a little bit of it because the whole thing was so absurd. I kind of didn't want to participate, you know, but I tune into the thing and there's Colonel Vindman explaining to the Senate. Now, listen, this President Trump guy, whoever he thinks he is, 
he was trying to change our Ukraine policy. He's not allowed to do that. The interagency has decided what our Ukraine policy is. And the president of the United States has no right to come in and tinker with that and screw with that. And meanwhile, this guy Vindman is a Ukrainian national. He's not even from America. He's a Ukrainian national in the U.S. Army, in the U.S., in the American White House, ratting on the president of the United States for making obviously a privileged phone call that these guys have no business, who are who they absolutely are obligated to keep private, no matter what. And then their objection is that the president dared to change the policy. And the policy had been decided by who? The interagency, what the hell is that? The interagency, does that mean a meeting of the deputies committee of the National Security Council, where the deputy director of the CIA and the deputy secretary of defense and the deputy secretary of state get together and talk about what they, how they think things should be? And who, does, who in the hell does the president of the United States think he is to tell them that their policy has to change? He's the president of the United States. I think these people, they don't even realize how crazy that was to do. And where this guy Vindman was literally a Ukrainian national pushing this story and pushing the impeachment of an American president for daring to boss him around. It's just unbelievable. Just completely. If I made it up, you'd be like, Horton, that story is boring and stupid. That's not you even talking. No one would believe that. Yeah, no, it would never catch on. (laughs) Exactly. Like, yeah, if you wrote it as a as a political novel, it's not even very interesting. It's like. It's like a story anyway. um, Now, so here's the other thing, though, is Trump had a horrible Russia policy. And I think he did that partly because he was constantly accused of being a pro-Russian traitor. Right. And I know there's at least one quote of his son saying, well, look at all the arms we're sending to Ukraine. You can't say we're pro-Russian traders now, right? So they were incentivized to do that, and they did that. Just as the FBI told CNN with the Russiagate hoax, we're doing this to hem him in, to prevent him from having a policy that's too warm on Russia. And even though, remember, Obama and Hillary ran on making friends with Putin and Medvedev, and she had the big red right. reset button and all of that. And, and yeah. that was their whole the like, smart uh, and right thing to do eight years before. But Hillary yeah. had ruined that relationship by suckering Medvedev into voting for the UN Security Council resolution for the no-fly zone in Libya, which she then turned into a regime change war in Tripoli against Gaddafi and completely screwed him and made him look terrible and encouraged Putin to come back after only one term out of the presidency when he was probably more likely to wait too. Because Medvedev was his guy. And at that time, Putin was cool in his heels as prime minister in the, or speaker of the Duma, whatever it was. Um, so is that when the narrative from the Democrats really shifted on Russia? Because I remember in 2012, Obama versus right. Romney. Romney right. was like the ridiculous Russia hawk. And Obama was even telling him, you know, the 1980s want their foreign policy back. This is right. ridiculous. But then that's it was flipped. I think, I mean, they had this Ukraine policy anyway, but, you know, I just read this really interesting thing. You know, I'd have to go back and check all his dates and work and whatever, but it sounds right to me. It's um, a piece by Richard Hanania, uh, Hanania, Hanania. You know what I'm talking about? I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. He's a conservative. He writes for Defense Priorities and um, he's a, he's like a right wing academic. And you can see he's like extremely anti-woke stuff and all of that, like very much like, I don't know if you call him a Buchananite, certainly an anti-war conservative. Um, and he wrote this thing. I would have never picked up on this because I just don't watch TV, man. I just am not interested in this kind of, this part of the zeitgeist has got to just go on without me, man. I'm just not going to do it. But he wrote about this show House of Cards, which I do know of, that had Kevin Spacey and as I learned here, he plays a Southern congressman who gets elected president. And in the story, um, oh, what Hanania is talking about is, I think it was in 2015, after this all this went down in Ukraine. And 2015 was when Putin passed his anti-gay propaganda law. And that this was such a big deal in the American foreign policy establishment. 
that they are as woke as they pretend to be. They don't want to talk about money. They want to talk about identity. And they're all caught up in it so badly. And here, Putin passed this absolutely most politically incorrect law. And they even made a whole season about it on House of Cards. And in the, in, in the House of Cards show, America and Russia are about to hammer out a Middle East peace deal for a two-state solution for the Palestinians. But it all falls apart because of Putin's anti-gay propaganda law. And they're willing to sacrifice a Mideast final peace deal because America can't be seen to be getting along with this horrible, 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 worse than Hitler, right-wing fascist bigot, you know, stand-in character for Vladimir Putin. And then as Hananya puts it, that like, you have to understand how bad, oh, and he was in academia at the time, right? So he says he saw how this affected everyone. And it was just the biggest deal in the world. They just couldn't get over themselves about it, you know? Um, and where, you know, some of us who are not into like that kind of thinking in liberal politics and in foreign policy, like for me, I heard about that law and I just didn't care. Like, I don't know. I don't know all the details of it. I don't think they were making it a crime to be gay, but they were saying like, if you're putting out pro-gay propaganda where kids might get it or something, you know, I don't know. Sounds like it violates the First Amendment, but it's Russia. They don't have the First Amendment. And whatever it is, and however, whatever degree I agree with it or disagree with it, I just don't care. And I, I can't right. see how that would ever affect my foreign policy in a way. But I should not sell these liberals short for how short they sell themselves, right? Like they would make a foreign policy based on that. They would make a foreign policy based on how upset they are by Kevin Spacey's portrayal of the situation on House of Cards, even worse and above the actual situation in Russia. But at that point, though, Hananya's point is that at that point, that was it. Putin is worse than Hitler now. He might as well be lining up and machine gunning the gays in Russia for as much as they, you know, care. You know, that's how much they hate and fear him. That's how horrible and evil and right wing and the antithesis of everything they are. He is. And I got to tell you, like that shit went right over my head, bro. Like I had no idea that Reed. like I, how would I have even picked up on that? I don't know. I mean, I guess I remember them being somewhat agitated at the time. You know, it made some headlines at the time and all that. But the way Hananya put it was like he was at Georgetown or Harvard or whatever foreign policy school at the time. And he saw everybody's heads just absolutely explode over this and how they've just never gotten it over it since. And so you could see why, hell, I bet Putin doesn't have any idea that either, right? right. <laughs> I bet he doesn't understand how important that is in the situation either, you know? Um, but- It's the dictate, I mean, you're right. That's what like dictates policy now when we were leaving Afghanistan the big outcry was that women were not going to enjoy women's rights anymore in Afghanistan. Like that's more important than anything else. Like we care about the social policies of countries that aren't our own, even if we have to murder people to <laughs> kind of get that view. I, I mean, it seems to be the case now. Yeah, uh, totally right. And it's all a bunch of, you know, blowback infested, heavy handed, ham fisted, you know, uh, power mongering in a way that almost surely is to backfire. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. Maybe there are examples of where the U.S. State Department insisted that some country drop all their anti-gay laws, and then they did, and then everything was great. But I kind of doubt that. You know, I think that probably they're, you know, essentially abusing their position to push for those kinds of changes in other people's cultures and countries. And they probably, you know, cause more harm than good in doing that people you know what's so funny is that's so recent after the democrats changed their views on gay right. marriage too. <laughs> like yeah hillary years. and obama both were against gay marriage until like 2013 or something right you know yeah so and then they're like oh and everyone to the right of us on this is worse than adolf hitler you know the next day come on man you know um Anyway, so I think that probably does have a big part of animating, you know, anti-Russian animus on the American side is that kind of Putin is seen as this horrible right wing Christian white guy 
um, you know, a click to the right of Buchanan or worse. And so they just hate him for that. You know, um, mm -hmm. it's probably a big part of it. But so another thing is to go back a little bit. Well, sorry. So on the current situation here, Trump was constantly being accused of being a pro-Russian traitor. So as his son said, that was one of the reasons why he gave arms to Ukraine. He's calling me a pro-Russian traitor now. Like, this is pretty simple manipulation, but that's how easy they were to kind of manipulate. So yeah. where Obama was afraid to arm them, Trump did arm them. And um, now this part, I don't know if he's responsible for this or not. I really just don't know. I got to say, I sort of suspect that he didn't even know about this. And this is just the Pentagon doing whatever they want and him having no control over his own policy, which is his fault. He was the president and I think he's just got attention deficit so damn bad that he just can't see anything through. And so I think the Pentagon was largely left to do whatever they want around the world during Trump. And certainly um, if he was responsible for this, then extra shame on him for that, too. Um, but they increased the naval presence in the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea and the Sea of Ashtok. It's called their north of Japan and the Far East in North Asia. And they also increased all their bomber flights where they fly nuclear bombers right up to 12 and a half, 13 miles off the coast in just barely international waters to force the Russians to light up all their defenses and radars and all of their stuff in order to test their defenses. And they've just done this constantly for years. And Biden has continued the same thing. In fact, we just ran a piece at antiwar.com by Jason Ditz. I'm sorry, it might have been by Dave DeCamp um, two days ago about how America has and I think this was based on a piece in Stars and Stripes or something about how under Biden, they increased their presence in the Black and Baltic Seas by 120 percent or whatever it was over Trump's last year. So this is, again, with the lie by omission. What they never tell you is America has been more and more and more provocative in the Black Sea and in the Baltic Sea um, and in the Far East this whole year long leading up to the Russian buildup. Now it's been three months since the Russian buildup, which they say is right on Ukraine's border, but that's not true. It's right. 200 kilometers in, which is like 170 miles or so. Um, and so it's a latent threat. But you know what? As Dave said, Dave DeCamp, when this started, the Americans, it was the front page of the Washington Post on November the 1st. Russia building up hundreds of thousands of troops in a massive invasion force, sources say. Okay. The Ukrainians said, no, -uh, what are you talking about? And it took the Americans to kind of elbow them that like, we're talking about the invasion force that they're building up. And then the Ukrainians went, oh yeah, yeah, the invasion force, right? Yeah, we're concerned about that too. Can we have some weapons? And so they've been playing along, but it's the Americans who've been behind this the whole time. Meanwhile, the Russians have not said, that's right, we're gonna invade unless you give in to all our demands. They haven't said that. They've said, what are you talking about? We're not invading. We're not invading. We're not threatening to invade. What invasion? We're not invading. You keep saying that, but we keep not doing it. And then they said, well, you know, as long as we're talking about it. <laughs> and they started making some demands. So I wouldn't even call that playing hardball. I mean, to me, that's playing softball. You know, yeah, they built up some troops, but troops rotate in and troops rotate out. And that doesn't have to be a threatening invasion force. Uh, you know, that can be in the eye of the beholder. So Putin essentially, you know, he's playing chess here, but he's not being very aggressive. And mm. but once they threw their panic attack, then he said, all right, well, look, I want some assurances. I want you to promise not to bring Ukraine into NATO. And I want a, a new treaty or a new deal or get back in the INF treaty, which Trump ripped up to uh, keep medium range missiles out of Ukraine and out of Eastern Europe, out of all of Europe. Now, here's the thing about that. Uh, Trump, when he ripped up that treaty, it really sucks because the Americans claimed that the Russians were violating it, that they had made some medium range missiles too. And that may be true, although I think it's kind of disputed. It's not known for 100% what the range is on those things, but that's the accusation. But I heard from uh, different experts, including Charles Freeman, that the only reason the Russians did that is to use on their frontier with China, that they're not interested in deploying medium range missiles in Europe. Why the hell would they do that? This is for protecting their frontier with China. Well, guess what? That's why Trump wanted out of the treaty too. He wanted to ring China 
with these mid-range missiles. And so America and Russia lost their treaty that kept medium-range nukes out of Europe so that they could both threaten China, right? So right. Um, now America well, I, has I think anti- people, like, people can't p- picture this because it's another country, but for us to have medium-range missiles in Ukraine would be like some adversary putting missiles in Mexico or Canada, exactly. right? Like right on our border. And right. we'd never stand for that at all. Like, I remember what bad. happened when the Russians tried it. Jack Kennedy said, oh yeah, I'll burn this entire planet to the ground before I right. let you keep nukes in Cuba. And they went, whoa, okay. And they pulled them out. And then, but he also agreed that he'd pull the medium range Jupiter missiles out of Turkey and promise never to invade Cuba, which has held this whole time. So he backed down. He climbed down, too. But he threatened to go. He was like, dude, we'll nuke you. We're not letting this happen. We'll go to war right. over it. So um, that, yeah, it, it might be helpful to put yourself in the other side's shoes every once in a while or, you know, do the shoe on the other foot thought experiment and see how America would react in similar circumstances here. But one of the things about the U.S. puts in what they call defensive missiles, anti-ballistic missile missiles in um, in Poland and uh, the radar stations in Romania. But here's the thing about that. Those anti-missile missiles are fired from the MK-41 missile launcher, which can also be used to fire Tomahawk cruise missiles that can be tipped with hydrogen bombs. So if you're Vladimir Putin, you're going, ha-ha, you know, yeah. that's very coy of you, but I see what you're doing there, right? You With these dual-use launchers, it's kind of a backdoor way of sneaking mid-range missiles back into Europe. Now, to Biden's credit, he doesn't want to bring Ukraine into NATO, and he doesn't want to put these dual-use missile launchers into Ukraine. And the guy's dumb, but he's not stupid. And he knows that he picked this fight. I mean, I haven't heard him admit that out loud, but evidently he's at least willing to admit that to himself a little bit. Because, you know, the worst of the Americans' tough talk is what they threaten Russia is going to do. But it's not what they threaten to do in response. I mean, what they threaten to do in response is level sanctions. I mean, Biden has said point blank repeatedly, we will not defend Ukraine in war. They are not a member of NATO and we will not put troops there and we will not fight Russia for Ukraine, which is good that he said that. But he said it so loudly that it was almost like a green light, like, hey, go right ahead, man. In fact, he said, if we if they do invade, we'll put on massive sanctions. And then he goes, actually... If it's just kind of like a small incursion, eh, maybe we won't even do the sanctions. And that people really were like, oh, man, you know, he does talk off the cuff a lot, Joe Biden. He, he sticks to his practice line and then he starts ad-libbing. And then, it's you know, everybody's face palming. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen next. But, um, I mean, the reality here is that you don't need to worry about a nuclear war right now, Reed. I mean, it's true that... Your government is poking their nose where they do not belong whatsoever, that they're raising the risk of a war with Russia. Imagine 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, when their red, white and blue, essentially majority white Christian country like America is, um, which they have substantial minorities in Russia, uh, just like America does. But like essentially. There's no, you know, we used to have a severe ideological competition with the communists in the Soviet Union. Those days are just long gone, man. And um, the idea that we would be in any kind of uh, contest of brinksmanship with them at this point is just crazy. And look, it's not like we're talking about they're about they're threatening to invade. Well, first of all, they're not even threatening to invade Ukraine, but they're not threatening to invade Poland or Germany or you know what I mean? Like if we get real about all of this, Ukraine is east of what we ever used to call Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe, like, stops at Hungary and Romania. Ukraine was, was the Ukraine. It was known as, like, a Russian region, even when, you know, it was kind of separate and kind of not at various points under the czars and under the communists. But, you know, the idea that Ukraine somehow is in America's sphere of influence, but it's not in Russia's. That our, you know, their sphere of influence is inside the Russian Federation's borders, period, and not one inch in any direction. Our sphere of influence is the entire sphere of the planet Earth. And we get to do whatever we want and say whatever we want and pick whatever we want, government we want, and overthrow whatever government we want. And 
and claim it's all in the name of the rules-based liberal world order and and peace. Um, so do you think this is... Why do you think they're doing this right now? Do you think it's like a strategy to try to distract from what a disaster Biden's domestic policies have been? And they're trying to they've got an election coming up with the midterms. and They're trying to make the Democrats look better. Like, I mean, why do you think they're doing this? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, You know, I really don't know. And frankly, like if the CIA puts it in The Washington Post that Russia is about to invade Ukraine, I don't really know that that's coming from the White House at all. You know what I mean? It might be. I should probably go back and read that first story and see if they cite White House sources or just military and intelligence sources or what for that. But, you know, I, American presidents can be very powerful. But at the same time, you're talking about one man on a surfboard on an ocean of power. You know what I mean? Um, so the institutions themselves, the Pentagon and the CIA and the State Department, they are the empire. And, you know, I mean, I don't know if this is 100% proven fact, Reed, but I'm pretty sure it is. And I sort of, you know, look at the story this way. If you're familiar at all with the story of Gary Powers, the U-2 pilot in 1958, I think it was, uh, Ike Eisenhower was going to go and have a summit with Khrushchev. And I'd have to go back, but the way I understand it was Eisenhower really wanted to put an end to the Cold War right then and say, listen, we're gonna sign new treaties, reducing our nuke stockpiles way down. We're gonna recognize each other's sphere of influence. We're gonna pledge not to expand in this way and that way. And we're gonna have kind of a detente and a modus vivendi starting in the late 50s instead of in the early 70s when nixon finally got that policy started eisenhower's vice president at the time uh finally got detente going um you know uh 15 years later but right before the summit the cia's u2 spy plane piloted by a guy named gary powers got shot down over the soviet union and the thing was people assumed from the beginning that this was a setup because he had a parachute and the whole thing was, this was supposed to be a completely deniable mission. He was not supposed to have a parachute. He was right. supposed to die if his plane got shot down, that that's tough, but we can't have survivors being held captive and paraded around by the Soviets and maybe admitting to our secrets and all of these kinds of things. Well, lo and behold, he had a parachute and was paraded around on Russian TV and all these things. And that scotched the deal. And my understanding again i'd have to go back it's been a long time since i read about this but the way i remember the story was that eisenhower blamed the cia for deliberately screwing him that they had deliberately flown their plane too low and got it shot down when he had ordered an end to all flights in the run-up to the summit meeting and they went ahead and did it anyway and got shot down and it ruined the meeting and that he blamed them for deliberately sabotaging him in that way and I believe it. I mean, I don't know why not. And I mean, it's in their in their institutional interest to do so. And they have a permanent blank check of impunity and get out of jail free and secrecy and everything to get away with whatever they want. So, um, yeah, I don't even know who's really behind this, man. You know what I mean? Maybe it is the White House. Um, but maybe Biden is just like uh, helplessly sitting there in his diaper getting fed all of this stuff by all these other people and is, you know, not even sure how to make hide or hair of it. You know, I don't know. Um, but yeah, speaking of uh, Biden, um, the first time I had you on, it was almost exactly a year ago. And we were both pretty optimistic about Yemen. Like we thought he might actually be pulling support from Saudi Arabia in Yemen, but it doesn't mm -hmm. seem like any of that's happened. It's nope. Nope. I'm a damn fool for thing. buying into that at all. And I thought that there was enough of consensus inside the Democratic Party at that time and within, you know, his campaign people and everybody else that as they came into power, they were going to be held to this one. And there was a lot of activist pressure. And, you know, for the first three weeks of his presidency, People were pushing. Well, Biden's been president four days. He hadn't ended the war in Yemen yet. Hurry up. Right. And it was like that for the first few weeks. Yep. And then he announced that, yep, we're doing it. We're ceasing all maintenance, resupply, 
logistics and intelligence for the Saudi war. And we'll continue to help them with defensive weapons, such as, you know, Patriot missiles or Aegis uh, radars and machine guns and things, anti-drone and anti-missile technology to keep the Houthis from attacking inside Saudi. But we're not going to help them wage their war against the people of Yemen anymore. And he announced that in, I think, the first week of February a year ago. And then by the first week of May, Admiral Kirby at the Pentagon said, yeah, no, I mean, we're still doing all the maintenance on their planes. Of course, they wouldn't be able to fly. So that was it. They didn't yeah. call off any of it. It was one big order. So I don't know if it was Biden that they got him to change his mind or if the Pentagon just said, screw him. What's he going to do? He'll forget about it tomorrow like Donald Trump and we'll be able to just go on. But so now, you know, it's been another year of war and, and terrible war. I mean, just the bombing campaigns and all of that, the the um, the famine crisis, none of that has abated at all. It's just continued on. I mean, um, you know, the official numbers are something like a quarter of a million people killed um, from the violence and the famines, a hundred something thousand from the violence, another hundred something thousand from the famines. Man, you know it's more than that. It's more than that. And I'll tell you what, you know, at the end of this thing, now seven years into this thing, Reed, when this is over and if they have the capability to send out the statisticians to do the excess death rate, you're going to find a million people died in this thing. And mostly just helpless little toddlers and babies starving to death, dying of colds, dying of malnutrition, uh, dying of cholera. And, um, and yeah, so uh, Obama didn't only back Nazis in Ukraine, but he also originally like not for not very long for like a couple months or something right we were actually supporting the houthis and then we switched and sided with al-qaeda against the houthis that's right and, and yeah. people can people can check my twitter feed and just go back a couple of days because i was tweeting about this over the weekend um because on the 29th of january was the anniversary of the famous wall street journal story i try to make it famous anyway that um america's siding with the houthis why? Because they like killing Al-Qaeda guys. Why? Because Al-Qaeda guys like killing them. And so our current Secretary of Defense, then General Lloyd Austin, was the four-star general head of Central Command. And he had allied with the Houthis and was giving them intelligence to use to kill AQAP. Now, there are a lot of Al-Qaeda-linked so-called groups in the world that you kind of shouldn't buy into that crap. But these guys are real Al-Qaeda guys. They helped coordinate the September 11th attack. Before that, they bombed the USS Cole in Port and Aden in the year 2000. They uh, did the Charlie Hebdo attack. They did um, a couple of the Eagles of Death Metal and the other uh, slaughters in France. And they tried to blow up a plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009 with the underpants bomb, Abdullah Muttalib. And there are two packaged plots where they tried to blow up planes with explosives uh, packed in the storage base there. So these guys are real ass Al-Qaeda terrorists. They help coordinate, I say they help coordinate the September 11th attack. Um, and so um, Obama essentially had a war against them that was only backfiring and was only growing them more and more powerful. And there's a lot of stuff I gotta leave out just for time and complicated sake. But by the time the Houthis are coming to power in the end of 2014, Central Command is like, hey, we could use these guys to kill Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda hates the Houthis. The Houthis are Shiites, Zaidi Shiites. And to the Al-Qaeda guys, they're heretics worthy only of death. And Al-Qaeda are their most ferocious and determined opposition in the entire country. And so the Americans were like, hey, if we can help these guys kill those guys, let's do it. And Barbara Slavin from the Atlantic Council, she had written a story like this for Al Monitor just a few days before. And she got a whole spiel from Michael Vickers, who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense for Intelligence at the time. And he explains, yeah, we're passing them intelligence and they're using it effectively to kill Al-Qaeda guys. It's a lot of fun. It's working great. Then two months later, Barack Obama switched sides in the war and took Al-Qaeda's side against the Houthis. And the Saudi UAE Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula coalition is who we're fighting for on the ground there. And um, and there was just a report in CBS News last week uh, that said, yeah, geez, looks like Al-Qaeda is getting stronger. You'd like to think they'd go away, but for some reason, they're stronger than ever in Yemen. 
yet for some reason is that America's been guilty, the American leadership has been criminally guilty of high treason on their behalf for seven years, Reed, for seven years. It's no less worse than building the caliphate in Syria and Iraq. I mean, it's just, it's completely crazy. It's completely treasonous. And and what's the result going to be, man? I don't ever hear enough talk about this. This is the, the so this is the conversation we got to get started, man. What about the next generation of AQAP after this stage of the war? You know, after Afghanistan, these guys went home to the Philippines, to Saudi, to Egypt, to Jordan, to Libya, to Syria. Created the Al Qaeda and jihadist movement we know today. Then W. Bush throws a big party for him in Iraq War II hundreds of thousands, or at least tens of thousands of jihadists from all over the Middle East go to fight in Iraq War II, and then they go home. And they go home to Libya and to Syria and to Yemen, where we took their side again. Like in, you know, when, when George Bush threw him a party, he was fighting for the Shiites. They were the opposition. But we went right back to the Reagan years, right back to backing these guys. And then, so what do we think AQAP is gonna look like after seven years or eight or nine or as long as it takes before America stops and then switches sides in the war back again to fighting against these guys? I mean, they are going to be, it's gonna take forever. And there's going to be people from all over the Middle East who have traveled to Yemen to join them, who then are gonna go back home again in the same perpetual motion machine going back home and causing these further problems. And you know, like if you're listening to enough already right now, you said, you notice how many times in that book, and I didn't do this like, oh, this is my common theme. I always want to make sure and mention this all the time in this way. It just comes up over and over again. It's only a theme after the fact that you just find over and over and over and over and over again. The origin of this group is in the 1980s Afghan war, right? Whether we're talking about the Libyan Islamic fighting group, whether we're talking about Ansar al-Islam in Syria, whether we're talking about Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, we're talking about Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, talking about Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb in Algeria. All these guys come from Ronald Reagan's war in Afghanistan in the 1980s. That's where they all come from. All bin Ladenite groups flow from there. Then just Bush and Obama, now Trump and Biden, just building them up and building them up and building them up. When we fight them, we build them up. When we fight for them, we build them up times a, a thousand. I mean, what is this gonna look like at the end of this phase of the Yemen war? What is AQAP gonna be then, Reed? It's gonna be a target for another decade of war or worse or more. I mean, we might have a real American invasion. We might have boots on the ground to go fight AQAP three years from now. You know, someone remember this and go back and quote it three years from now, if that turns out to be right. But not if it doesn't. Yeah. But well, we're going to have a war there. I mean, you mark my words there. AQAP is stronger than ever by I don't even know how many times. But but they they make what they were seven years ago when Obama switched sides in the war look like it doesn't even count. Whatever AQAP was seven years ago is nothing to what they are now. And as I document in the book, for time, they had seized seven towns and including the city of Makala, an entire city. And for years, they ruled the entire tax base at a, a, of a port. They seized military bases and all the weapons magazines. And then when the Trump government said, listen, this is starting to look really ugly that we're back in AQAP so much. They made a deal and just joined the UAE's militia. And the Americans knew about it. They admitted that they knew about the deal. They go, oh, no, we're still fighting AQAP. In fact, it was funny. I, I was interviewing this many journalist I know named Nasser Arabi. And I'm like, well, I don't know, Nasser. I read in the paper that they're got a, a whole new war against AQAP that they're starting back up again right now. And he just started laughing in my face, you know, over the Skype. He goes, oh, really? The Americans are drone bombing the UAE's militia now, are they? No. That's all AQAP did was they renamed themselves the UAE's militia and joined it and that and but they're still the exact same guys and they're going to be the exact same guys that they were again as soon as this phase of the war is over and i gotta say i mean look the genocide is worse but the treason is just as bad as the genocide mm. i mean it's almost unexplainable except that well 
Saudi and Israel get what they want, not you. And they hate Iran more than, why would they hate Al-Qaeda? They don't care about Al-Qaeda. And so the American government, they don't care about Al-Qaeda either. They hate Iran, they hate the Shiites. And they're willing to back Al-Qaeda just like in Syria and just like in Yemen. They're willing to back Al-Qaeda, no problem, as long as they're fighting against Iran and their friends. So, I mean, on it goes. I, I don't know, man, I gotta tell you, this one really gets me just in the, all of the ironicals, you know, I mean, the Afghan war is so bad and the Iraq war is so bad and so just counterproductive and, you know, Libya and Syria and all these things. But this one has kind of a kind of overall sort of theme of just absolutely batshit crazy to it, right? Well, Syria is yeah. the same way too, I guess, but it's just, it's insane. It's insane. Yeah. How could we be doing this? Yeah. And 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 then we have this whole like this is something that I think could be studied as its own separate phenomenon here is the diffusion of responsibility in America's wars that comes from what they call in the Obama years leading from behind. And that means we pretend that it's the Europeans waging the war in Libya, not us, even though it's all our bombs. And it's all our logistics. It's all our everything. They can't wait. The Europeans can't wage a war without us. You know, we did that. Um, and same thing here in Yemen. You can hear it every day. You type Yemen into your Google News right now, and it'll say the Saudi-led coalition, the Saudi-led coalition. But we're the world empire, and they're our client state. And that's the way that works. They don't produce F-15s. We sell them F-15s. They don't produce bombs. We sell them bombs. They can't even maintain their own planes. Our contractors do that for them. This is our war. But no, it's not. It's theirs. And if they're violating the Geneva Conventions, well, you know how those Saudis are. And then that's it. Although, <clears throat> I hasten to mention, because it, and it's, um, people can find this in my recent tweets about this too. Um, just from the last couple of days, if you page down there, you'll see where I cited the New York Times and Reuters both had stories about how in the Obama years and in the Trump years, lawyers at the State Department wrote up memos about how they were concerned that they could all go to prison because they're breaking the law. They're guilty of war crimes because they're targeting civilians and they're aiding and abetting the Saudis knowingly aiding and abetting the Saudis and the UAE, targeting and killing civilians. And that is a crime. It's a felony. It's against the law. And they said, you know what? We could go to prison. Well, that's a laugh. There's no accountability in the US government at all. What an ignorant State Department lawyer who thinks that the law applies to the US government and its employees. Damn fool. However, the point still remains that he's pleading guilty, that he knows he's a war criminal when he writes that memo saying to himself and his bosses, we could go to jail for this. They know what they're doing and they keep doing it anyway. And then they wanna talk about Vladimir Putin and Chairman Xi Jinping, you know? Give me a break, America, this is true when Martin Luther King, the most politically correct man who ever lived, said it, and it's true today. The U.S. government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, period. Nothing that they have to say about any other country that they accuse is of any relevance whatsoever. They are in no position whatsoever to criticize even the Chinese communists for their crackdowns on whoever. There's nothing that compares to the cynicism, the dishonesty, and the criminality of the US government in the world right now. And for the last 20 years, for this whole century long, it's an absolute disgrace. And just think what the history books will say about this. What are they gonna say about this, Reed? Well, you know, the American presidents found reason to back Al-Qaeda um, because it was really important that they do so for a while because there were too many civilians there in Yemen and they had to starve and kill them all because a Saudi crown prince, no, sorry, a Saudi deputy crown prince wanted to become crown prince. So the yeah. Americans 
hired themselves out as mercenaries and shed the blood of a million innocent people at the behest of some foreign monarch and getting absolutely nothing out of it whatsoever but this stain. You know? And that's yeah. if they write about it at all. For all we know, the whole story of America's war in Yemen will be, well, in 2009, Obama dropped some drone bombs on Al-Qaeda, and that's all you need to know about that. You know? That's probably more likely, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, if you guys like getting the truth heroin from Scott Horton, he's going to be in Salt Lake City with me on February 26th. I've got a link in the description to that event. Um, also in the link, uh, you can find his Twitter, uh, his antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute. But anything else you want to mention, Scott? Just them books, man. People want this stuff. I got uh, Enough Already and Fool's Aaron. And uh, as you mentioned, the audio book of Enough Already is now out as well. It's me reading them. You can stand and listen to me talk for 15 hours. That's that's the story I, I there. Couldn't hear, I couldn't listen to anyone else read the book, Scott. Like hearing your voice, it just it makes it real. I don't think it would work with anyone else. But I, I agree with that, man. I don't think I mean, I don't know how good it is with me, but I don't think anybody else would have quite got it right. So, uh, yeah. Um, and look, uh, just thanks to everybody. And I got a show, too. I interview people. I've done five thousand six hundred something interviews so far. Um, they're all available for free at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can sign up for the podcast feed there and all that. And I'm on Twitter at scotthortonshow. I'm on the radio Sunday mornings in LA. And I think that's it. All right. Well, again, thanks for doing this such short notice when I fucked the schedule up. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, no problem. Happy to do it anytime.